This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show, we have Andy Cloyd and Anders Bill. They're the co-founders of Superfiliate, a company unlocking the power of word of mouth with automation and creation of personalized landing pages for a brand's best customers, ambassadors, and affiliates. Andy, currently the CEO of the company, spent seven years on the other side of the table in the venture capital world, investing in pre-seed through Series A companies, while Anders... A serial founder, certainly no stranger to the entrepreneurial scene, having founded multiple companies prior to launching Superfiliate. In this one, we dive into the company's latest raise and what it takes to raise around in today's funding environment, what makes a good early stage venture partner, how quote unquote rash, uncalculated decisions can often create opportunity, and much, much more. So, with that intro out of the way, let's get right to it. Here is my great conversation with Andy Cloyd and Anders Bill. Enjoy. Five days ago, you guys just announced your, at least formally announced, your $2.5 million raise. Last time we chatted, you had not announced this. So congrats are in order. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it's always the uh, the formally announced is always the funny thing. And you know, we even had a little bit of an adventure with uh, uh, Press Newswire leaking something before. So some people, it wasn't a surprise to and others it was. But yeah, we were super excited to get that out there. And just, you know, I think there's been a bunch of different moments where we've got to start to talk about the business publicly a little bit more and more. And that's one of those ones where it's like, no hold back, full speed ahead at this point. So we got the news out and it's been amazing. It's, you know, from a talent perspective, from a customer acquisition perspective, from investors. Now you just got done talking to investors and now new investors are reaching out, but super excited and like proud of the team for getting that across the line. I know it's been a tough market. And it's awesome for us to get to put our heads back down to building product, hiring great people. And yeah, tough market. I mean, this isn't 2021. The funny environment is not what it was. So very challenging waters to navigate, but you guys come out the other side beautifully. How did this round come together? Yeah. I mean, this round was, uh, I would say it was a, a fairly unique story in the sense that Anders and I had started funding this company, you know, at the start, mainly from like internal networks, we both had come across a lot of people throughout our respective careers, whether that was founders who had exited, who had money and, you know, GPs that we had worked with from venture funds and, you know, people who were willing to support us early and were able to put together an institutional round, but we you know, did it on a safe to give us the flexibility of like, I'm kind of a believer that early days, if they're smart value add people that want to give you money, you just kind of say yes. Um, and we actually had a fund come in at the very tail end of our first round, you know, a year after we had accepted money from some other people that they came in under the premise of, you know, hey, let us put a small check in now, watch progress and see, you know, if we like what we see, we'll, we'll step up and lead a subsequent round. So we did that, spent, you know, two, three months sending investor updates, showing progress on product and traction and revenue. And, yeah, they ultimately said, hey, like we let's throw some fuel on the fire and move this a little faster. So we kind of quickly mobilized, put together a hit list of like, hey, these are the target firms that we think like know our market. We know the people there. We know they're good people. Our rounds coming together quickly. Yo, are you in or you're out? And we were able to run a super efficient process, found some like perfect partners to work with, you know, not only just from a like, you know, institutional capital perspective, but also specialty funds in our space that like 
really understand what we're doing. Some of whom I think you've had on the pod in the past mm-hmm. and uh, put together a syndicate of like great diversity of capital, whether it's, you know, institutional funds, creator economy, people, e-commerce experts, both angels and funds. And, you know, ultimately got it across the finish line. And, you know, I really six to eight weeks and got right back to work. And, and you know, now we're in the process of the fun part of that, which is, you know, figuring out the best way to deploy that capital to fill gaps and throw fuel on the fire. Yeah, absolutely. And you sort of come by it, honestly. I mean, you've spent time in venture. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think there are a lot of listeners that just don't quite know how to think about vetting a particular venture partner and asking themselves, like, what makes a good venture partner? It's like you said, we had a very lucky disposition just having the networks in the space, which I think is one of the hard parts that a lot of people don't get to come to this with. But you know, well, we were looking at partners for this round. Like I've seen these go great and I've seen them go very poorly. And I think like the times that they go late, great, it's really around finding people where you're aligned on what you need to do to get to the next milestone. It's, you know, you don't go in and you know, they think you're going to go to Y and you think you're going to go to X and then you go to X and then they're like, what the hell? We thought you were coming to Y. Mm-hmm. And like Anders and I were just very clear in the process of like, this is how we are going to manage the business moving forward. You know, do you agree or disagree? Or if you have insights, like we're always flexible, you know, like we're certainly willing to change a plan based on new information or new perspectives. But we just spent a lot of time making sure that we were all aligned on like, if we get this capital in the bank, this is what we're going to do. And like, if we are able to accomplish that, we'll all be happy. And if we're not accomplishing that, we're all going to be aligned on putting our heads together to figure out how we get back on track. And then I think like, there's also the personal element. It's like, these are people who you're going to be on the phone with Saturday night at 8 p.m. whenever something happens, or you know, you're going to be spending time with these people theoretically for the next three, five, seven years. And you got to like the people that you're working with because these people will probably be with you longer than some of your employees. And, you know, we treated it almost similar to a recruiting process of, you know, you understand what they can bring to the table from a, do the places where they spike meet the needs of the company. But then also like, are these people you're going to want to spend time with? And we were super fortunate to like be able to have some options and find people that we, you know, felt check the box on both sides of that. But then I think also bringing together a like diversity of partners that are going to bring different perspectives, networks, connections, resources, things like that. And ultimately just getting a syndicate that you're really proud of. Anders, I'll throw it over to you. Is there anything looking back that you would have done differently in this round? What was your experience like? I think for me coming from, so my last two companies were bootstrapped and you know there were a lot of times where capital would have been really nice. There's a lot of mentality shifts. I remember hearing Andy on the phone one night working at his venture firm and just thinking like, oh man, that guy would be a great CEO of a company one day. And I was like, that's when Andy and I started talking about starting a company together. And Andy brought such a different element to the table where I always was from a bootstrap mindset, which was revenue funds, growth, revenue funds, hiring. And I think we've thought about this capital allocation question from a few different vantages. One is around outcomes, meaning like, what are the founders and what does the team want for the business? I think like, not a lot of companies are actually having that discussion internally. I can't tell you how many companies I've talked to and employees I've talked to where they're like, I have these options and I have no idea what they mean. And my company just raised around and we have something called a preference stack. I don't know what that is. And like, you have to ask the hard question of how does your funding structure one day affect everyone's liquidity? You know, like everyone one day hopefully gets paid on this future equity. And I think being really, really clear with a team is something 
that I think Andy and I, you know, really, really, really wanted to be super honest with. And that's something that we pushed on. And then from a capital perspective, like from an allotment and size of the round, I think it was very well-timed. I'm like super, Mm -hmm. super excited that we were really lean and mean in the beginning. And some of our early investors, like the team over at R Squared, Roy Rez and Roy Rubin are kind of, they push us in different ways. They're like, hey, y'all have more money now and you need to be thinking about growth from different vectors. And when the product starts really working, you know, that is when you really want to start thinking about that seed round, right? The pre-seed is like getting the product market fit. And once you have a version of product market fit, you start to ask those broader questions around, okay, what does product distribution fit look like? What does our product utilization look like? How is this money going to help us get there? Mainly from hiring in our, our space, you know, hiring killer people to fill those needs. And I wouldn't necessarily do anything. I think like it's a really, really hard funding environment where I think a lot of founders and investors are actually getting away from a lot of first principles. And that's why you have a bunch of companies now that are overfunded. You have a bunch of like zombie unicorn companies who have to go public or they have to raise down rounds. And there's extremely harsh implications for employees, previous investors, et cetera. And so we're being very mindful of the mistakes that were made in a more frothy 2021 environment. And you see that in the, even in the CPG world, you know, like a lot of brands have have overcapitalized as well. And sometimes it's not to the fault of their own. And sometimes you really need capital and they're capital intensive businesses. And so that's probably a longer conversation. But yeah, overall, super happy with, with how the round came together. Yeah, no, congrats. When you say founders getting away from first principles, what are you referring to? Are you referring to simple unit economics of a business generating profit? In some ways, yes. In the others, it's there's only two outcomes for your business. It's acquisition or IPO, right? And for the vast majority of people, well, there's a third option, which is you shut down, which happens the most often. And in that second option of acquisition, I think a lot of people aren't looking at the acquisition M&A market within the sectors that they're looking to build companies in, and they're not looking at the public sector, right? If you just looked at e-commerce SaaS, right, which is where we are, there's not a lot of public companies in this space. There's some that has some great potential to But there's a lot of companies that went Series B, Series C, Series D that, you know, they have to go to Wall Street at some point or they have to go to a larger acquirer. And I think the first principles, you know, let's just say from like a growth investor and a founder in a later stage is you look at your public comps. You know, you probably shouldn't be raising 20 to 30x revenue on your Series C or how you're thinking about going public because you're just going to be in a really tough financial position to do so. So and the first principle side, of course, on, I mean, really like lean and mean on the revenue and unit economic side. It also depends on the type of business. Like for us, there are some businesses where you do grow without the revenue scale because you're trying to corner a market, right? And that's much more around the product strategy and product philosophy. I think for a lot of e-commerce and e-commerce SaaS, that's not the case. And so it should be very much, hey, who is our target market? How much can they pay us? How much incremental value can we prove that we bring to them? And how do we take a percentage of, of that incremental value? Anders, given your experience bootstrapping prior businesses before, do you feel like if this round didn't come together the way that you had expected, that you would have continued down this road and continue to fund it from the revenue you were generating? We were break even basically as a company. We're getting towards break even. I'd say we were like a few months out of breaking even. It was very clear that there were two routes to the company, right? We could say to our preceding investors, we want to run this business to be a really profitable business where the longer term vision is you know, 20 to 40 employees, you know, we slowly get to this merchant milestones and these product milestones. But it was very clear that that money would allow us to responsibly scale the vectors of the business that we were really excited about. And so in short, like we would have been more than happy to stay in that realm and like get profitable and just focus on building core unit economics that are really sustainable and scalable. 
But we also just saw a path where we could race around with some really strategic people in the space that would help us grow much quicker. And also really importantly, in e-commerce, it is a very interpersonal market, right? It's very gatekeeper-esque. There's a lot of platforms, a lot of platform risk. Bringing people around the table that are influential on that side is not that it's non-negotiable, it's highly strategic. And I think there's a lot of handshaking that goes on in the back end, and it's totally worth it for us to have, have raised that round when we did. Andy, I think it was you that posted this on LinkedIn. It might have been a month ago, but you said something like, you know, just 20 months ago, you and Anders had nothing but an idea and some enthusiasm. So it's surreal that you've gotten to this point. Just take listeners back for a moment to the beginning here. What is the origin story? I mean, incubating a startup off just an idea and some enthusiasm doesn't seem like enough. So what else was going on? Well, the origin story is actually super funny. It's, um, yo, I've been an investor for seven years. And I think anybody on the investor side of the table says, I want to start a company. Of course, it's, you know, you spend time around entrepreneurs all day. It's like the most inspiring people. Everybody says, yes, I probably was never going to be the person that's like, here's my idea. I'm dropping everything. I'm going all in. But I happened to move into a house out in Venice, California with a bunch of strangers that I didn't know. And one of those people was Anders. And he's just this like lifetime bootstrap founder, like exactly the type of person that I just described and the type of person that's got the idea and the fearlessness to just dive in. And, you know, Anders kind of was listening to me do, you know, the venture stuff and was like, hey, let's get you out of the stands and into the arena. And, you know, there was a lot of like conflating factors and things going on that that really like positioned us to say like, how do we not do it? You know, we had a friend who had sold a company that gave us access to some engineers that were highly strategic and knew the space. You know, I had a pretty strong feeling that I could pull together at least the capital we needed to like take a shot at an idea. And I think like we just saw a huge opportunity and part of a market that Anders and I both had experience in. You know, we saw huge headwinds and paid acquisition in the way that like our potential customers grew in the past was not going to be the way that they grew in the future. And I think like those type of like really like macro level disruptions create a ton of opportunity. And did we have the perfect idea even out of the gate? No. So really we had enthusiasm and a problem we wanted to run after. But I think you know, I had seen and talked to enough people that said, if you get great people and you're running in the right direction, you're collecting information, talking to customers, like ultimately that's what's going to lead you to an opportunity. And for the first year, Anders, myself and the team were, we're just taking in information and kind of sussing out where is this opportunity. And, you know, ultimately we just decided to go all in and run fast at it. And, you know, frankly, haven't looked back since. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. Clarification question. What were the circumstances around the move to Venice into this random house? I had actually just joined a new venture fund and was about to move to Washington, D.C. And you know, my roommate at the time was moving in with a girlfriend and I needed somewhere to go until for COVID to like kind of quiet down and, and make a move across country make sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, I met somebody who said, 
hey, we had somebody back out of a house. We need somebody, a warm body with a pulse to pay some rent so we can grab a house in Venice. And you know, it was four people I had never met before, but I've found in my life that like those kind of just rash, uncalculated decisions have oftentimes created the most opportunity. And this was certainly an example of that. And you know, that ended up keeping me there for, for several more years. And, and you know, not only is that my co-founder, but now that's my best friends and, and just like a whole part of life that I, I would have never expected. So let's talk about the market, the opportunity set, what you guys were observing when you were watching from the sidelines. What was going on in the world of e-commerce? What were some of the problems? I mean, you already mentioned one of them, high paid acquisition or high CPA, high CAC, as some people like to refer to. What else was going on that made you scratch your heads and go to the whiteboard and say, we got to solve this? I just want to reemphasize the first one here. Facebook and Shopify or Facebook and the D2C world are so inextricably connected in a way that has such powerful ramifications to everyone where Apple's ATT policy, you know, was probably one of the worst things that could have happened to Meta in that time and worst things that could have happened to those merchants, right? I mean, people's acquisition costs basically 2x across the board. And obviously, there's been a lot of normalization that's happened. Um, I think Meta's actually responded quite positively with a lot of new AI strategies and how they optimize the delivery of content. But I think that macro headwind is just like there's still some lasting effects there that have basically pushed Andy and I into this broader discussion. I think it was Mark Andreessen, but he was saying, you know, there was a study done where they looked at like 200 of the top performing companies over a 50-year time period and tried to understand what gave people the biggest longevity, basically, right? Like they survived, they thrived. They stayed in public markets and it was basically across the board. It wasn't the idea. It wasn't the team. All those, those were super important. It was the market and it was the way that, that company bended around the opportunities in the market, right? Because in a time where there's these macro headwinds, where the primary source of acquisition and growth to your business get threatened, it requires a marketer to do a couple things, right? They have to look at the rest of their stack and go, what else can we lever up? And then the other is to cut costs, right? So consolidation becomes a value proposition. We started to build the product backwards off of the macro market conditions. So we knew consolidation was a big part of the play, whatever we were going to be building. And then the second question was, what are the things that people are looking towards outside of paid media? And word of mouth was one of those categories, right? It was kind of like organic and paid or how some people categorize that. And again, word of mouth is such a broad category. Within that, we include referral loyalty programs, ambassador programs, affiliate programs, influencer programs, partnership programs. Some of those word of mouth programs are also paid. So it's not just unpaid and paid, but they're totally different, obviously, from like traditional paid media. And we also at the same time saw a word of mouth technology stack that wasn't what we felt was super impressive. Everyone that we saw in referral loyalty, ambassador, affiliate, influencer, was essentially building Lincoln code technology that felt like CRM technology. It was like, you know, here's this attribution, here's this click, this experience, you know, this influencer is getting paid $10 cuz they converted Anders and we just didn't feel like anyone was really innovating, particularly innovating on the front end experience, right? At the same time of like all of us doing this research, we saw what the best marketers were doing. And we said like, hey, this best practice that doesn't scale, which is to build a co-branded landing page when working with you know, top customers and creators, it was something that just never scaled. And that was like our kind of like light bulb moment where we were like, hey, there's a really big opportunity to own a huge part of word of mouth if we sell consolidation. But we also have a wedge into the market 
which is innovating on the front end experience. And so obviously for the people listening, you know, Superfleet essentially automates the creation of co-branded landing pages for a merchant's best customers and creators. But we also allow a marketer to run a full-fledged referral loyalty program, affiliate program, influencer program, all in one app, right? Rather than going to three to five different services to do so. And yeah, those were the the two core market conditions that we were really, really focused on. And that continues to shift. I mean, the platform risk and dependencies across the board are so large for everyone, and particularly in the e-commerce ecosystem. So yeah, I think that market narrative is going to continue to shift. So you're already working with Mudwater, Beam, Hia Health. You've said your target's to reach more than 200 clients by year's end. How far along are you at this point in terms of customer count? We are about 50 plus merchants, some ranging in size from two to 300 million a year and others that are doing you know a couple million a year in revenue. So we've been really focused on the up market. We find that the resources to put behind these programs is a really key determinant of success. You know, and when you look at a lot of the like largest software companies that are out there in the ecosystem, there's always this managed service component with the top tier of these customers. And that's why we wanted to start there. I mean, look at Shopify Plus, right? Shopify Plus is this like really interesting mix between SaaS and agency-like models, right? It's like you pay a certain amount a month, but you also get some type of this managed service. And so for us, we were really focused on the upmarket. That's why, you know, you won't find us in like the public Shopify SEO game, right? We're much more of like hand onboarding and scaling and really being focused really on the expansion. You know, if we get to those 200 merchants, awesome. And with the current merchants we have, our goal is to expand. Hey, we started with your affiliate program. Let's start with your, let's then go on to your referral loyalty program and then take on your top 20 creators. Let's help you provide resources to those things. But those channels do require resources. And I think that's where we find the most amount of headwind in the space, which is everyone's strapped for time, right? These teams got smaller, there were cuts. There's a lot of energy and effort that needs to go into running a top tier word of mouth program in the same way that a company wouldn't just turn on paid media and say, I'll talk to you in 12 months and see what the results are. We're trying to train these marketers of like, hey, here's how you invest in this channel. Here's how you think about providing resources here and best practices and investing into it. Is this just for Shopify merchants at this point? Are you platform agnostic or? At the moment, it's Shopify dependent. So one of our earliest investors, Roy Rubin, was actually the founder of Magento. And, you know, we definitely have gotten some awesome perspective from him and Royal Reds, his partner there on on the expansion to other spaces. I mean, on a first principles basis, our front end infrastructure puts the point of influence next to the point of conversion, right? And that scales well beyond Shopify to all e-commerce, but that scales outside of e-commerce. You know, our vision really is to build the front end infrastructure for the way that companies can work with their best customers and creators where front-end strategies have never been scalable. You look at like all the page builders out there, not just in e-commerce, even the web flows of the world, they're not about building hyper-scalable experiences where there's like dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of commerce experiences or websites running all at once. It's much more around building a tailored landing page experience. So we're really focused on building the infrastructure for working with you know that one-to-many relationship. But of course, starting in Shopify, of course, they have the best just collection of merchants here and just also Shopify is just winning top tier deals across the board. I think a lot of the ecosystem is maturing and you're seeing that with large merchants. And I think we're going to continue to see that trend where Shopify is going to continue to win the massive big box retailers in the ecosystem. Can we talk about trends for a moment and future pace? So e-commerce is coming off two incredible run-up years coming out of the pandemic, or at least the first inning of the pandemic. 
post-pandemic, we see a trough, a little bit of a bottoming out in terms of e-commerce. Do you feel like from a macro perspective, your product offering is almost best suited to ride the next wave of e-commerce back up again? Are you thinking about it that way? We totally are. We're asking ourselves these very first principles question of in one to three years, are our creators and customers of a brand going to become more and more important? And I think it's very clear that as a distribution channel, they're continuing to become more interdependent amongst each other, right? Like if you think about the way that money will flow there, creators are going to be dependent on brands because they're paying them and brands are going to be dependent on creators. It's this really interesting relationship. Hmm. Influencer and creator markets have become... They've gone through many cycles themselves. The first market was like, hey, paper post, it's going to be unclear about what attribution is like. There's even these trends of like, hey, the traditional influencer who maybe identified as an influencer years ago may not be selling as well. And the more like professional is selling the best. So let's just say it's like a dietitian, right, is maybe performing better than someone who is more of like a traditional food influencer. And I think that's all about trust, you know, and the trust economy and their ability to sell into it. We really do see that as a huge wave of growth for the merchants that can really nail the other core parts of what it means to run a really effective word of mouth program. But again, they're very, very involved, right? Facebook is this like very central platform where you can invest in it. It kind of is a black box. You get these customers back. I don't think it's going to be exactly the same here, right? You have creators across Reddit, YouTube, Meta, TikTok. Now there's like short form video across all those platforms and I think that is going to become more and more important. And I also think the world of short form video has just taken over everything, right? Look how Instagram has adjusted their entire business strategy around Reels um, and even how they're thinking about ad placements in Reels. And so TikTok really was super disruptive there. But I think Mm. that's coming for the e-commerce world because that's where people are spending their time. You know, people are spending hours of their lives in these platforms. So I think we're we're absolutely going to see that continue to trend. I wonder if TikTok gets shut down ultimately in the U.S., I've looked at the bill that they're trying to pass mm-hmm. and I think it, there's a lot of there's a lot of things in there that are not about TikTok and that are are larger privacy concerns. Sure. I can't, you know, tell the future on this side. I think it's it's possible. I do think there are some rational people in Congress that are saying, "Look, Meta's doing a lot of similar things here. Uh, a lot of the social platforms are doing similar things. This isn't really just about TikTok, right? It's about general kind of surveillance of what people are doing online. And also, you know, it is a bit of a proxy for what's happening in China and the Taiwanese conflict. And, you know, I I see it as kind of a proxy of this like anti-China rhetoric. And so I I personally hope it doesn't pass. I actually think it's very un-American if it it Mm. did pass. And I think like it's a really bad precedent to set. And I think if it does pass, I actually think that TikTok would divest its company into an American corporation and wouldn't actually go away. They're not going to just let the asset disappear. No, I think that's right. Like the only thing I'd add there is like the behavior change has happened. You know, people now spend more time sitting on their phones watching videos. And I don't, I don't think, you know, that will find a home. Um, And I think, you know, there will be creators who will then be putting content to those eyeballs where that's happening. You know, I think it could shift. You're already seeing even in like Meta's earnings announcement, you know, you're seeing them gain share in that part of the market. So I, I think like there is the consumer behavior that's been established and find where that ends up landing, I think we'll find out. But I think overall, we want to ride that trend of that consumer behavior. Yeah, I think that's smart. Going back to your target customers, these folks that are one extreme, 2 million in revenue, other extreme, 
north of 300 million in revenue. Do you feel like you have to spend a good amount of your sales cycle time educating these customers on what's actually going on here? Do they fully understand your value proposition or is it almost like 50% of that sales pitch is educating them on what's actually going on potentially within their business and then talking about your solution? It's an awesome question. I, Andy and I always debate this with the team internally. I think on the sales process side, I actually think it lands quite nicely where people have the mental model for what a landing page can bring. It's very simple, right? It either has to increase the propensity for someone to want to share that link or it has to increase conversion, right? And so I think people understand it. When we go from sales and like thumbs up to like, let's move forward and let's onboard, that is where I think we have the most friction because again, a lot of these brands are constricted on resources. And the question becomes, how do I think about my front end in a scalable way? We provide that infrastructure and we provide playbooks to do that. But how you're actually executing on that is something that depends on a, a per team basis. Some teams are like, they're dialed. They're like, we tried to do this with our top creators. Those are like the dream customers. That's like really our ICP. It's not even about mm. just like how big they are or how loud their customer base is. It's usually our ICP is actually based on the internal team's buy-in and if they've tried it before, right? We tried to build 10 creator pages or, you know, a custom experience for our customers and it just like didn't scale and it didn't work or it did work and like we just couldn't go past 10 to 15 people. Um, and so for us, they just like, they get it. It's like what they've always wanted. And so, yeah, I think there's that process of the sales to the onboarding side. And look, we try to spoon feed the product as much as we can. We offer, you know, for our first thousand merchants here, we're going to be building their first landing page for them. And we offer that as a free onboarding service. We want the mental model to go from, I'm used to spending thousands and thousands of dollars on creating a landing page to, and waiting weeks for that to, I started working with Superaffiliate, this new app, and I have a landing page built for me. It's super mobile video optimized. And I upload a list of a thousand top creators or customers. And I have a thousand of those pages sitting there for me to, you know, upload content for them or teach people how to use it. And that's a big part of this too. After a month or two, and you see the top performers, the big question becomes is how are you doubling down on those top people? When you look at the results from a top performing affiliate influencer referral program, it's always the top five to 10% of people who are actually producing results. And we have that software that allows you to really double down on the experience you're offering them and their audience. You know, it's funny. I had someone from my team just do a little bit of research on the competitor set before this episode. And frankly, the names that I got back either didn't make sense or perhaps weren't direct <laughs> competitors. How do you guys view your competitors? Do you feel like you are a first mover? Do you feel like a f you're a fast follower to anyone? Is there someone that was trailblazing in this space that inspired you and you were like, yep, yeah, we got to jump in. That's a big market. How do you view it? I bring up the competitive analysis into like three different categories. And Andy, let me know if you see this differently. One is the incumbents that are in each of the subcategories that we've talked about, referral loyalty, ambassador, affiliate influencer, because look, we have to prove incremental value for someone to say the front end scalable strategy makes sense, right? Because if not, they still have those tools, you know? And a lot of those tools have been in this like pricing war where they're like, trying to corner a particular feature of theirs to charge the merchant extra money. And maybe that feature has now become like embedded in that marketer's workflow and like getting away from it is really sticky. So those are, are totally competitors, like the traditional players in all of those ecosystems. And there's multiple multi-billion dollar companies in each of those subcategories, which is also what makes us really excited. We don't see them innovating in a way that, you know, is stepping into our category. And we really think we have a cool wedge there. The second category is more onto like, the front end, 
I wouldn't say the front end providers, like not the, the traditional page builders, but I would say it's more of like the the companies that are trying to take some of the mind share in the creator space. We don't really directly compete with these people. These are the people that are building like vertical marketplaces, right? They're serving Adam as the creator. We're serving the merchant, right? We serve the merchant and their needs on that side. And the third is we've seen that some people come up with like some contextualized commerce experiences. Some serve very different needs like the ads ecosystem, which I think is awesome and that's that's very needed. But we're laser focused on word of mouth. And I think that's where we're going to stay for the foreseeable future. So I think we're in a very unique place. And I also think, by the way, TikTok shop and Instagram shop, they're going to become competitive in their own way. You know, I think that's uh, absolutely, we're, we're all trying to get the conversion experience, right? And try to not necessarily make friction zero, mm. but introduce the right steps of friction that are hyper contextualized to drive conversion. Um, and so in that way, I do see over time, there's the Instagram shop and TikTok shop that continue to converge into that space. Whether or not that goes into the traditional affiliate influencer referral space, I have a ton of doubts. They would definitely take on the ad space before anything else. Yeah, that's how we view the competitive landscape. So two and a half million in the bank. What's the next year going to look like for you guys? When we think about, you know, like Anders mentioned, getting we had been lean and mean and got this business to about a point of break even, mm-hmm. which is an amazing place to be because it really means you get to take a step back and you say, we're raising money to not keep doing what we're doing, but to start doing new things and to get more aggressive. And I think, you know, the first place we went with that was just, we know product is always going to be the way that we want to win and the vector we want to win on. And we went and started, you know, scaling our engineering team. We're up to 10. We've had three engineers except in the last week and a half, which is amazing doubling down on product design engineering. And then now we're really starting to think about the go-to-market. So that goes across, you know, one, hiring people more experienced and better than Anders and I at, at each piece of that. So we think about people who, you know, as Anders alluded to earlier, there is like a component of really understanding your customer and their workflow. And we're going to, you know, right now hiring the best user of Superfiliate to go and put together the playbook of this is how you win. This person's been winning at other brands or at other agencies, and they're going to, you know, take that playbook and scalably push that out to, you know, our merchant base and show them how they did what they did using Superfiliate and how Superfiliate is going to help them do it even better. You know, we're also thinking about people who can help us get the word out in some of these more traditional channels. You know, I think part of being a founder early on is doing everything kind of poorly, but you're doing all of it. And then you you know, mature into that phase where you get to go find people who have done it before and are going to do it better than you. So we're starting to think about things like, you know, obviously our first move on the go-to-market side was bringing on a head of merchant success that had spent the other entire career servicing merchants in an agency capacity. They have the bedside manner. They speak the language. They're able to quickly contextualize our product in the overall, you know, group of things that our customers thinking about, like, how can we figure out where we fit into that and then speak that language, get the mindshare they need to deploy and you know, be able to increase our time to value. And you know, the final wave is really, you know, Anders, I we're just going back and forth on this today is like, and it kind of references back to your question, Adam, on like, do people know what you mean when you say what you do? Like, do, are people educated? And the reason that that's relevant here is because we're talking about like getting our first seller. You know, Anders and I have closed every customer that's ever come into the super affiliate pipeline thus far. And we're getting to a point now where there's that inflection point that says, you know, part of the story is no longer, you know, Anders and Andy moving into the house together and coming with a dream and stuff. It's we have a product that is better than what you're using, or you need to be using our product because you don't have anything. This is why. Here's what it costs. Do you want to start? And them saying yes. And like, that's an inflection point for a business because that's scalability. 
And yeah, you know, we're talking about that first sales hire of somebody who can jump on a call, you know, hear a merchant's issues, solution sell, and get that person live and successful. And then ultimately, then, you know, from there, we have to start moving up the stack to the top of the funnel. And I think we've started a bunch of stuff there to test, like, what are going to be those scalable acquisition channels? Because, you know, five to 50 merchants is very different than 50 to 500 and, you know, solving those problems. So it's really team, you know, it's bringing in great people who have been there, done that, and really helping us take things to the next level. If there are other businesses listening to this that are curious about your pricing model, what does this cost? We break up pricing on a very similar like triple whale where it's based on your last 12 months of D2C revenue. Mm. And so we always do a flat rate and a small percentage of the revenue that goes to your links and codes. And there's no attribution window on that. I think like attribution windows are this really hilarious part of the industry where someone sees that they're doing 10 million in revenue, but they're actually doing two. And it's because like all the platforms say they're attributing that revenue. So we do a flat rate and that percentage. We have those different tiers broken up into zero to two million in D2C revenue in the last 12 months, two to five million, five to 10 and 10 and above. The plans go as low as like 2.99 a month and 3% of the revenue that goes up to those links and codes. And then to the 10 million plus group, we always have a conversation. We're like, what are you paying for now? And how can we come in below that and make it competitive for you? It's all monthly costs and you're not in any annual or quarterly contracts. I actually think a lot of the annual quarterly contracts are just a, a sign of a very aging industry, mm-hmm. you know, where people aren't able to break these contracts, like these businesses that are actually in trouble from a financial uh, perspective that need capital are like getting shook in like almost like mob style of, well, you signed this contract, you know, and it's like, hey, like we're not making money on your service. Can we get off? And for us, we're like, we want to be positive ROI from day one. And then we also want to include a bunch of managed services where I want to make it a no brainer. I want to make it where it's like, oh, they helped us build our email SMS strategy. They helped us build our front end strategy. They built a version of the landing page for us. All these things that we would have had to like pay an agency or have someone internally do, we're here for it. Before I wrap up, I did want to ask you guys about lifestyle. Let's pull the veil back on lifestyle for a moment. There is what you read on the front page of TechCrunch, or we, we call it the business porn related to entrepreneurs and how many hours they work and you know adjustments to lifestyle, et cetera. Andy, what has been the change for you going from the venture world on the other side of the table to now being in a founder's seat from a lifestyle perspective? Less nice dinners and happy hours, you know. You still got you still got some of those, but now it's you're selling something. No. I think for me, look, it's there's obviously sacrifices. Like when you start a company, you go into it knowing that like the buck stops with mm-hmm. you. And that's gonna be the way it's gonna be for a while. So you have to go in with that admission that it's things will change. You know, in the in the venture world, the the beauty of the venture world and the pain of it as well is like it ebbs and flows. There's bull markets and there's bear markets. You know, there's like I I was for part of it, running through one of those bull markets where it was crazy. And like, I can say that I was putting in weeks where the hours are the same as what I'm doing now, but it's different. You know, the buck didn't stop with me. There's, you know, if you go a month without doing a deal, that's okay. You didn't find anything worthwhile. Better to have not done anything than done something stupid. I think now, like for me, from a lifestyle perspective, I used to be far more disciplined and like I made my schedule. That was, a you know, a much more controlled thing. Now it's just, you do what needs to get done. Sometimes, you know, that disrupts your morning routine. You know, Anders knows I used to like getting up at like 4 a.m. or whatever time it was and like walking around for two hours doing whatever the, the heck I was doing. And, you know, now it's like I wake up and like I go on Slack and hope I don't see the siren icon. That means that something's going wrong in our QA channel or whatever. So I think like, you know, at first I probably took a little while to adjust. Now I've gotten to this stasis of, okay, I understand what's going on. 
we've set up systems to the extent that you can understanding there's always going to be those fires you have to go put out and drop everything and do it but you just you know design a system that works for you so like i've got my non-negotiables you know like i am going to go on a run or i'm going to go to the gym and like i need to do that does that mean that i get less time i mean i'm sitting here looking at a bookshelf of books that i absolutely have not touched because those are the type of things that like you give up but that's the trade-off and you know like what you get in exchange for that is like getting to build a team and like getting to go every day and you're you're not in the trenches alone it's you know Anders and I are messaging or it's you know the team and I are messaging so I think like it's just been really figuring out what's important to me making sure I take that but then also recognizing the sacrifices and the choices I made and honestly I, I love it it feels good to have that level of skin in the game wouldn't do it any other way at this point point. and Anders you went from one side of the country in Boston to the other now in LA is there anything different about this rodeo for you yeah, I mean, we, my co-founder, my last company and I, we brought the company from Boston to LA and that was more for lifestyle as well. I mean, there's so much we could say about this topic and my personal relationship has, has changed so much with how I view this. Mm. Um, I think there's a healthy amount of your identity that is naturally tied into a business and then there's a healthy amount of your identity that you need to be able to detangle to properly unwind and to look at your business from a very pragmatic and non-dogmatic perspective. And so, I think that's like matured over time for myself, honestly, just through like pain and and there's always going to be painful part of the business. Like when you're starting on the product side and you're trying to figure out what's working, it's not like A-B tests. It's we're going with A, we're going to pitch it to the market, we're going to see what works and what doesn't work. That's so painful. You know, it's an awful process. Like it really is. And I think when you talk about balance, there are times where when you're trying to find product market fit, balance means something different. It's like going on a walk, you know, but you're still like, it's hard to detangle the thoughts around, is this the right market? Is it the right timing? What do we need to prove this? And so, on this go, I just feel like we have such a great team who is comfortable in the uncomfortable. And I think we've gotten a certain amount of product market fit now that's really allowing us to have a lot of momentum, but also still allows us to be you know, in the uncomfortable space. I actually saw a great interview with Brian Chesky the other day on Jason Calacanis' podcast about how he's doing product now. And I think it was really inspiring. I think the way that they've thought about continuing to innovate on a unified front amongst the executives of the company while keeping the core tenets of the business very profitable was really how I, I view the business similarly. But again, that's not through, that's been through a lot of pain and just like doing it wrong for like years at a time. Superfiliate.com is the URL for those that want to learn more. Actually, there's a funny story about the registration of that domain, isn't there, Andy? Before we wrap up, do you want to quickly run down that story? And given the same, you know, pronunciation issues that yeah. you know, we maybe we should have thought about, but we actually at the start of the company, you know, when all we had was that idea and that enthusiasm that we mentioned, we would like have people over to our house in the ecosystem, just trying to like bring people together, start to get the word out a little bit. That's how we got intros to our first few brands. But we hosted something one time and somebody comes over to our house and he's like, super affiliate. Dude, I can't believe you all stole my name. I own that domain. I've been selling like classes or something on there for like 10 years. He's like, I bought that domain in like 2007. Like, check it out. And I was like, dude, the amount of my friends that have sent me this link and be like, Andy, like this is, does not sound like the business that you told me you started, but here it is. So like somehow via, you know, the ways of the West side of Los Angeles, pulling that together, we host this event and there's, you know, superaffiliate.com owners and super, superaffiliate.com owner. They're in the same room. 
I don't know how that happened, but it did. So you can go to superaffiliate.com to check out that stuff, or you can go to superaffiliate.com and check out our stuff and you know, reach out to both of us. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting place to wrap, but let's wrap there. Gents, pleasure to chat with you both. Sorry about the scheduling issues. Thanks for being patient with our team. It's great to have you both on. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much to you and the team. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric acid. Electric acid.